Exciting news at This Week Health. Starting May 16th, our keynote show is moving to Thursdays. Catch every episode weekly on our This Week Health conference channel. Don't miss conversations with top health system leaders designed to transform healthcare one connection at a time. Subscribe to This Week Health conference and stay updated every Thursday. Today on This Week in Health IT. When an institution can make a direct correlation to, I need to invest in my cybersecurity defenses so that I can meet my institution's mission of patient care, patient safety. I can adhere to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. How do I do that if I cannot protect someone's data? How do I do that if I cannot safeguard my systems so when they need my care and attention, they're there and available and ready to, to access? This is a solution showcase. My name is Bill Russell, former healthcare CIO for a 16 hospital system and creator of This Week in Health IT, a channel dedicated to keeping health IT staff current and engaged. Before we begin, I wanna share an exciting announcement for This Week in Health IT. Starting in 2022, we're gonna have four channels to bring our community more specialized content for your specific needs. The four channels are news, community, conference, and the academy. The news channel will have our Today and Newsday shows where we explore the news that is going to impact health IT. The community channel is just that, a place where we come together and collaborate. One of the distinctions of this channel is that we will have guest hosts from the industry and people that they invite to talk about the topics that we wrestle with every day. Things like clinical informatics, data, security, and the like. We're excited about where the community will take this channel. The Academy is about training. It's about training the next generation of health leaders. Here's where we're gonna be launching our new show. It's called Insights. And the show will actually take highlights from our last five years and break them into 10 minute episodes for your team and perhaps people who are new to health IT to come up to speed. Finally, this channel, the one you're listening to right now will become our conference channel. The same great content you travel across the country to receive, we're going to be bringing to you right on this channel. This show will become Keynote, where we do our long-form 50-minute interviews with industry leaders, and we will be augmenting that with solution showcases and briefing campaigns that introduce exciting solutions in more detail. For more information on our other channels and where you can subscribe, visit us at thisweekhealth.com shows. S-H-O-W-S. Now, on to the show. Today, we have a conversation about cybersecurity, cyber risk, and maintaining patient safety. We have Jim Brady, VP of Information Security and Infrastructure Operations and CISO at Fairview Health Services, and Ryan Witt, the Industry Solutions and Strategy Leader for Proofpoint. It was good to see you guys down at, at the CHIME conference. It was just fun to be in the same room with everybody to have conversations. You know, it was a bit surreal thinking, wow, we're finally back. And these are all the folks that we've been seeing year in and year out. It's good to see everybody in person and to hear kind of what's going on. It was awesome. It was great to re-engage. And it was a really good in indication of we're all products of our environment, right? So the attitude towards how do you engage in these sort of conferences, what the right sort of COVID protocols ought to be were very much colored by, I think, where you traveled from, right? And so we saw, of course, Chime being a national conference. 
you've got a nice cross-fertilization of experiences. So it kind of was interesting to see how that all culminated that time. I went from Boston to Philadelphia, to Florida, to San Diego, and then up to Montana. So I think I did pretty much the entire cross-section. And it's interesting how vastly different we're still treating the pandemic across the country. I mean, even California was kind of surprising to me. There was really very little in the way of mask wearing. Now everybody had to show proof of vaccination and whatnot, but I I expected California to be a little bit more like Boston. Boston was very, uh, a lot of mask wearing, a lot of, a lot of safety protocols still in place in the Boston market. So very fascinating. I have to go up to Northern California, Bill. Southern California, we're a little bit relaxed. I'm based in Silicon Valley and we are Essentially, we are mask central. Masks are everywhere. So when I went to Chime, it was complete opposite sort of experience. It was interesting. So we got together with a bunch of people at Chime. What are you hearing with regard to cybersecurity at this point? Do we have this thing licked? There's not really much else for us to do, or are we still in the early stages of figuring out who's on first and, and what's on second? Yeah, I want to say it to your thing, it's hunky-dory and we have it licked, but it is the exact opposite of that. This is, I think, maybe if I want to use an analogy, I'll use a sporting analogy. And uh, maybe you can reference football as that is the sport that's top of mind right now, given the season. Cyber criminals are essentially running the ball right now, and they're going to keep running the ball until healthcare institutions can stop the run. And right now, healthcare institutions are not stopping the run. Now, we're seeing that play out most topically in the form of ransomware, okay, that is the top of mind, a sort of cyber event that certainly was was talked about a lot at Chime and gets a lot of sort of play just broadly. But if you just go beyond ransomware, you see email fraud or any sort of fraudulent-based attacks are, are very prevalent. There's more money actually lost to fraud than there is to ransomware. And truly, the reality, the real issue is is around credentials. I mean, credentials are quickly becoming the nirvana state for cyber criminals. Once they have your credentials, once they have access into the network, they have lots of ability to do all sorts of wonderfully devious things. And so, uh, no, we are we are nowhere near having this flicked. It's interesting. We're getting close to Christmas time, and I, I've started getting these emails. Hey, you've ordered this, and blah blah blah. And I got three of them this week and I looked at it and they're getting more sophisticated. Like I have to literally look at it really closely, then look at the email address it came from. And it's, hey, your Apple computer, blah, blah, blah. But it's from a Gmail email address. I mean, that's not that sophisticated, but generally speaking, we're seeing an uptick in terms of the sophistication of what the emails look like. And I assume if I start clicking on those things or calling that phone number, it's not long before they're asking me for information they're going to use against me. Is that essentially how, is it working the same way within healthcare? So I think that Ryan has a lot of data from his research arm of the organization, but, you know, definitely there are uh, a lot of attackers that are launching attacks from well-known established data repository sites like Office 365, SharePoint. Those are things that, you know, if you get a SharePoint link, you think, you know, it's okay to click on it. Um, obviously, there's a, there's a lot coming from Microsoft, some of the Microsoft Exchange sites that are on Azure. So I think that the attackers are getting more sophisticated. One thing I did want to put a plug in for is if an organization is not considered email isolation technology, I think that's really helpful because I know in my organization, you know, we're trying to get our users to not click as much on our simulated phishing efforts. 
And it's kind of like a never-ending battle because they're, they're really busy. I mean, at this point right now, we're in the middle of a mini surge. So all hands on deck, we're in command center mode. And so isolation technology, what it does is it allows you to open up any link or attachment in an incoming external email. If you can have that routed when the user clicks on it. So maybe it's a a bad link, like you just talked about, Bill. It'll open up a container, so if it does get weaponized or something of that nature, it doesn't spread through the organization. I think things like that are going to really help us out because we need to keep working on security awareness, but it's so difficult. There's so many emails. There's so much going on. It's really challenging to get people to realize that, hey, every email that's coming in is technically eligible to be a bad email. And so people just are not thinking like that. So I think that's something that we need to just be more aware of. Jim made a really, really good point that needs to be emphasized. A strong number of the exploits that your health institutions are receiving these days are coming from, they're housed in legitimate file shares, okay? So they're housed in your SharePoint environment, your Box environment, your Office 365 environment. And that's a marked change from where we were just a couple of years ago, where for the large part, those were coming from spurious kind of URLs that were out in the wild or being generated by bots. And that still happens, of course. But when you're being pointed to an exploit that lives in a legitimate file share, it's a lot more difficult for a couple of things. One is for your, your email gateway to, to make the determination that says, this is a bad malicious sort of activity. And number two, it makes it much more difficult for your users to spot its malicious activity. So that is a, the way that the bad actors have compromised these file shares is something that should be significantly concerning for us. And back to your point, Bill, when you think about what is the level of sophistication to the emails that are coming my way. So think about what you received. Think about that in a business context. Think about that now coming from a trusted partner, maybe like a business associate, somebody you're used to dealing with thinking about the quality of that email being reflective of what you would normally have in your conversation with that partner. And then it's pointing you to a place that you would recognize as a place to go to for more information. Now, all of a sudden, you've exponentially made this far more complicated for your end user now to determine, like, should I or should I not engage with this sort of conversation? Yeah, and it's kind of my supposition that it's almost impossible uh, for a human that's doing regular work to, to be held responsible to not click on a potentially malicious link because it's just, they're very sophisticated. And to add to it, many links and attachments will pass through the email filters because they have not been weaponized yet. So when they do come in and you click on that link, then it sends out a signal to what's called a command and control, and then it downloads the malicious payload. So how can you stop that? So I think that's where the isolation technology might be really helpful, but it's it's very difficult. We're doing phishing simulation testing. If I wanted to fool 90% of the users with a very sophisticated email, I can do it easily. So we're doing like basic, obvious phishing efforts that have pretty easy giveaways just to get people to start kind of at the foundational levels. So I think we do need additional support and technology to help us with this because it's just becoming, you know, really difficult. So the tools on the one side are getting more sophisticated. Let's talk about the tools on the other side. And that is kind of a scary concept that I get an email with a link to our Office 365 file share, which is valid, right? It's within our Technically, it's within our four walls because it's within our cloud environment. And so now I need tools that are going to be able to look at not only 
on-prem, but also into the cloud, protect me from things that normally are trusted locations, trusted in the cloud, trusted internally, trusted file shares internally, and those kinds of things. So I want to go about this in two directions. One is, Jim, I'm going to ask you about how we quantify the risk and where we get the money to do some of these things. And Ryan, I want to start with you on the, if the tools are getting more sophisticated, if the attacks are getting more sophisticated, we used to rely very heavily on education. I used to hear CISOs all the time saying, we've got a great education program. And I understand the value of that education program. But to, to Jim's point, it's getting to the point now where the sophistication is high enough and these people are moving fast enough in, in healthcare just in general that it's hard to say, hey, we're going to educate them to the point where they're going to be able to identify these things. Some of these things are not going to be identifiable. So we need the technology. What are we starting to see in terms of technology to detect the presence of those malicious threats within our environment, both in the cloud and, and on-prem? Sure. And this is kind of the good news, bad news side of cybersecurity and healthcare, right? On the good news is we're not waiting for a new technology to be developed. You're not waiting for a company to accelerate their roadmap to bring out feature functions that are needed to tackle some of the problems. The bad news side of the equation is this, this technology is tried and tested, it's on the shelf, it has been readily deployed and in use for many years now, in some cases in other industries, it's just not prevalent in healthcare yet. And so there are lots of remedies. Jim mentioned one around isolation technology. There's a lot of cloud security capability out there. There's a lot of capability around verifying authenticity of an email. So is the email coming from who it purports to come from, DMARC protocols, et cetera. So there are solutions are available. And I don't want to make this only about technology sort of solution, but technology is a big part of the step forward because I think you just can't train your way out of this, right? You can't put enough processes in place to get yourself out of this. So technologies are available. Healthcare has got to make much more focus on putting those technologies in place. And I know you're going to go on to where do you get that money? How do you get that funding? And I think Jim's got a point of view here that I want to get to. But where we see there's success in that, and when an institution can make a direct correlation to, I need to invest in my cybersecurity defenses so that I can meet my institution's mission of patient care, patient safety. I can adhere to the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. How do I do that if I cannot protect someone's data? How do I do that if I cannot safeguard my systems so when they need my care and attention, they're there and available and ready to, to access. So I think we need a combination of, uh, we need the technology, but as everybody knows, technology is not the answer, just technology alone. It's really a lot about process and how we think. And so I think that in healthcare, we've only really had to deal with data breaches and fines just recently, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, just the fines started. I don't think that people actually felt that they'd have to shut their hospital down or they they would have what's called business disruption or that it really hasn't come into the foray until the last year or two. So now we're seeing major health systems down for a month or three weeks or something and millions of dollars daily, you know, being lost that's hitting the bottom line. And so, so I think it's really important that, that the top down, the leadership, the board, the executives, the, there's ownership that this is a 
a problem. It needs to be an imperative. And so I, my organization, cybersecurity, is one of the strategic uh, imperatives that's woven in there. It's a topic at the board every time I go to present. So I think, I think it's getting people to be aware of it. And because there's many things that I'm seeing in my organization where people will think twice before clicking. If anything looks suspicious, some we, you know, because we've had attempts to try to redirect our pay accounts, payables, you know, we've seen where payer portals are, are getting compromised, just, you know, are out there. And so I think it's just helping the business understand that even though we're in peacetime in the U.S., we're not actually fighting a world war. You know, every individual is a potential victim. And so just being aware of that, it's just kind of like having the neighborhood watch in your neighborhood. Somebody can break in, maybe live in a safe neighborhood, but it's possible. And so it's just being aware of it. I've already seen an increase in reported malicious activity. We have a button that we, we put on our in our email client where you can just report it. We do respond to that. So I, I think that there's a lot that we need to do on the process side getting people engaged, getting them thinking it's, this is a problem and not just relying on technology. So, so Jim, it's, it's interesting being at Chime and hearing the number of stories. So we, we heard the big breach stories we hear about, they're the news they're written about. And I think that has reached the, the board, it's reached the CEOs. And as you, as you mentioned, I mean, shutting down the health system is something that catches everybody's attention for 30 60 days-ish when when these kinds of ransomware attacks happen. How do you, if you're going into the board, let's say next week, how do you quantify the cyber risk in order for them to understand it, get their arms around it, maybe even quantify it for your team so they can get their arms around it so that you can you can ask for the, the, the right amount of funds to do the things that you need to do? Yeah, so going to the board with a 50-page deck about firewalls and packet <laughs> encryption and stuff is like, that's a sleeper, okay? <laughs> You're not going to get much. So any high-level presentation of cybersecurity really needs to be focused on risk, and it needs to be dollars. And that's ultimately what you want to get to. So it all starts, uh, in my opinion, with getting that risk assessment. That's going to give you your foundation, your baseline. So we're using the NIST cybersecurity framework. They have a they have a maturity scale of one to five. And so if you don't know the state of your organization from that perspective, and that looks at people process technology, then you're really just, you're going to be talking hot air. So you want to make sure you have that assessment. And then it is possible to look at the high priority gaps that you're going to find. And then what's the likelihood of them occurring? What's the impact? What's the financial volatility that if that does happen from an actuarial perspective, like what the insurance companies do, in other words, is it a one in 25 event? Is it a one in 50, one in a hundred, one in 500? And what are the costs for that? You can look at in the industry. There's a couple of models that can be used. Obviously you'd have to engage your insurance company or a broker or some companies that are doing this, but you can actually quantify the probability and what would be the expected loss on average for some of these gaps. And if you add them all up, you might have a $4 million loss likelihood in 2022. And maybe it's a 75%. And so coming to the board and, and sharing the, those numbers and then attaching them to the, the lines of business, like understanding how the health system makes its money. Is it specialty pharmacy? Is it by growth, et cetera? Is it by acquisitions? And being able to talk in business terms with financial numbers and saying, hey, if we do 
if we do $2 million worth of uh, closing some of these security gaps, we're going to address the probability of having, we'll minimize by you know 50% a $20 million loss. So I think it's just coming and having that conversation that definitely will get those members of the board talking. They'll be able to relate to that because they are seeing in the news that there's health systems that can't collect revenue because they're business impact. Yeah, I think it's the most prominent being the uh, Scripps breach. And I think their financials, they showed 110 to 115 million in loss for the quarter that the breach happened. You sort of look at that and you go, okay, they're roughly a $3 billion health system, 30 day outage, roughly uh, diversion and whatnot. That's $110 million. It's that kind of quantification, isn't it? Yeah. So if you have the ability to engage a, a firm that can help you get those numbers, either add up all the individual ones to come up with a big number, or just maybe take the top five and say, hey, we want to do these top five. We have to start somewhere. That'll be helpful. You can also just take a rough guess of just a high order of magnitude based on what other health systems are paying. So uh, it isn't like you have to be a very large organization or have a lot of money. Because right now the problem is there's way too many security holes to, to address, to stop the ransomware and all that from happening, then there is money. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to be building cath labs. We're going to have to stop a lot of the things that are going to generate revenue. So it's that balance. But I think it's just giving the board and the leadership the, the tools, the details, so that they can make the right decision on how much should we invest in cybersecurity to address a potential loss versus not knowing it. And all you give them is, well, we're a 2.5 on a one to five scale. That, that doesn't necessarily you know, uh, resonate with them. And then I often get asked at every board meeting, Jim, what percentage of risk are you reducing each quarter? So how do you, as a leader, come to your senior management and be able to quantify that, hey, we've just reduced it 10%. And that's good. So there, there's uh, Monte Carlo simulations, there's Bayesian analysis models. So without getting into all the details, I'm not a statistics person, but insurance companies have this down. They do this, they've been doing this for many years. So it is possible to engage, to get that level. And I think if we could start just approaching in that direction, I think we would have a lot more support and we'd get more business buy-in. At the risk of <laughs> one of the things I feel like in cybersecurity is in healthcare, we're always fighting the last battle. We're not fighting the next battle. We're fighting the last one, right? But I'm going to talk about ransomware anyway, because I feel like it is the last battle, but it's still going on. And I'd like to hear from both of you on this. You know, which areas do you recommend CIOs focus on right now to minimize the ransomware risk? Ryan, we'll start with you. If you want to use your phraseology, if you're fighting the ransomware battle, you're fighting the wrong battle. Okay. All right. If you're fighting the ransomware battle, the likelihood of, of a bad actor being in your network, having an understanding of your environment, setting up some sort of command control sort of environment is, is pretty high. Okay. I mean, Ponymon has some data around this saying that bad actors in your environment or in your network for up to six months before being detected. Let's say Ponymon data is wrong. Let's say they're wrong by, by 50%. Let's say it's only three months but they're still in your, your network for three months, right? That's like the equivalent in a physical security standpoint is somebody living in the closet of your spare bedroom for three months, figuring out your operations of how you run your family, and then making some sort of determination based on that reconnaissance about what is the best level of exploit to launch against your, your environment, your family, or in this case, 
your network. So you need to work, my argument would be, you need to work very, very strongly to keep people out of your environment, to keep people away from getting credentials. User credentials is the nirvana state. It's what everybody is trying to get to. And they're so valuable because it offers, it unlocks parts of your sort of network and your environment, your kingdom, that they do not use that data lightly. They want to make sure they are able to exploit it when it's most beneficial for them to exploit it. So when they can maximize their ROI. So I would work really, really hard on making sure that if you had any sort of external facing systems pointed to the web that you lock them down, especially you can, I know that's hard, or secondarily or in parallel, I would make sure you work really, really hard to make sure you preserve credentials as a primary focus of your cyber activity. Jim, are, are you finding that a majority of people have dual factor authentication and is that enough protection or is it, do we need more than that at this point? Yeah, so I know all the organizations that I've been at, of course, it's a number of years and we've been progressing, but you know, we have our cyber insurance companies that are now confirming that you need MFA, you need privileged access management for, for you, where you have MFA and you're not just giving hundreds, if not thousands of domain or other high elevated privileged access accounts and people just have them and they never change the passwords and their service accounts, which kind of run computers. And so I, I think that they're saying that's tough with them. I mean, for, the, for those that have gone through the the joy of the survey turned into a long inquisition where you have to, you know, answer a lot of questions. That's very high priority. So I think I think we're okay in it, uh, but I don't think we're anywhere near like our internal applications because many of them are legacy. They don't support MFA. A lot of us do not have MFA on all of our applications. We're just we're kind of focusing on maybe the cloud-based ones like Office 365 or you know G Suite, etc. So I think that's a big area of opportunity. There's a, I'm trying to think of the animal, but let's say a, a turtle. I'm not sure if a turtle has a soft underbelly, but you know, it, we want to make it difficult for people to not get in, but it's like ants in my house. It's like, where do they come from? You know, how do they get in? And so it's, I think we spend a lot of time on trying to prevent people from coming in, but not enough time detecting, are they in? So just in ability, you live in Southern California, we have these little things called earthquakes and fires, but with fires, you can't always prevent a fire, but what the fire department, they do focus on quickly responding to put that out as soon as possible. And I think being able to respond more effort in detection. So there's threat intelligence, there's technologies you can bring in where you're looking for anomalies. I think that's important. We need to be able to have that as part of our arsenal. We can't just think that we can just block everybody from coming in because they're, as Ryan said, they're going to sneak in. And then once they get in, if they're allowed to stay in for a couple of months, they have the ability, I guarantee you with most organizations to go undetected, get with a regular account, they could probably get a high elevated domain access if they're, if you're not using that privileged access management. So, so anyway, lots of things you can do, but I just, those two things kind of popped out. I'm a realist, right? I mean, I, much as I think that needs to be more investment in cybersecurity across the board for healthcare, I understand that there are a lot of factors at play here from a budget sort of standpoint, resources, there's a lot of constraints here, but I think one of the remedies here is understanding who is being attacked in your environment, because there is a lot of data, there's a lot of research about where bad actors are focusing their time and their energy. 
and Proofpoint certainly talks about this and others do as well. But like, if you have any sort of connection to your credential environment, maybe you're in an IT support function, likely of you being attacked has been exponentially higher. If you at all work in your supply chain, if you're working with your business associates, you have access to, to funds or you can approve funds or you can help authorize who gets funds, you're being attacked. If you have a research environment, you are most likely gonna be subject to not only attack, probably attacks by nation state actors, the people who are far more sophisticated and far more targeted. Point being is you could probably look at a standard organization and say 10% of my user force, my workforce are much, much more targeted than the broad industry or broad organization as a whole. That's a 10% where you wanna double down on your security investments. You wanna double down on your layering. You wanna make sure they have access to your controls. And so it's one of the mitigating factors to say, okay, I can't do everything from a budget standpoint, but there are 10% of my workforce I can actually make a difference with. And I, I would think that's the kind of usable sort of action that I, somebody could take away from this sort of conversation and say, yeah, okay, I can, I can work with that. So Jim, armed with that information, I mean, you just heard those three, three areas. I heard supply chain, IT, finance. I heard research. Armed with that information, how would you approach it as a CIO? I mean, does that information help you a fair amount to, to really focus in on what you want to do? Yeah, and actually that's what happened in my organization. We had meetings with the CFO because of some of our third-party portals that there were attempts to fish and get their credentials or just use social engineering. We even had an attempt to call the help desk, see if they could change our multi-factor authentication number so somebody could get in. So we're definitely we're definitely seeing the attacks. So just sharing that sharing the attempts that we uh, we do have some technology in place where we can proactively look for fraud and so having the cfo see that understand it then we realize that that hey there's some things on the process side that the business needs to look at to also participate and to secure things and reduce the risk so in other words what's the uh, process to change a routing number or bank account etc is it just you got an email that said to do it so you just click on it or do you have to actually go and a human has to approve that so what they've done on the supply chain in the finance side is there's certain things now that a human must look at it have a conversation maybe check and it can't just be automated and so those are things because you know you're you're subject to losing thousands, if not millions of dollars, because it's really easy to, you know, just click a button, you know, but we can't trust. It's a little bit like the zero trust. You really have to not trust everything and not trust, but verify. I think some folks have said so anyway, so we're having those conversations. They've changed their processes so that, so that we can be more secure and have more gates in place to check, to make sure that things don't happen. I would think that's incredibly powerful, right? If I look in my neighborhood and you tell me, hey, it's, it's those four houses over there that have the highest risk, I could focus all my energy, not all my energy, but I could focus a significant amount of my budget on, on process controls, on education, on technology, on layering the technologies, as you talked about, around those, those four houses. Now, eventually, you're going to have to take care of the whole neighborhood, but that's I think that's a a really pragmatic approach to stretching your budget instead of trying to protect the, the whole thing with the same level uh, across the board, because it's, it's so expensive. 
And sometimes we talk about healthcare like it's one big thing, like everything's an academic medical center and they're not. There's You have the academic medical centers, which probably have the budgets and the money and the need if they're having nation state attacks. But then we have the much smaller health systems, which have to protect against those same areas. Maybe not research, but they have to definitely protect supply chain and, and the security credentials. And they can be shut down just like a large health system, actually, as we've seen over the last year. But to illustrate the point, and you mentioned academic research center, we did some work, Proofpoint did some work with a, an academic healthcare institution, very prominent institution. They had, I don't know, a half dozen or so sort of research institutes, okay? But there was one of their institutes who had a particular area of study, which they were world-renowned in. I won't want to go into the detail, but they were world-renowned in one of these areas of study. So once you actually looked at the detail and who was being attacked, sure, the research organization was particularly being attacked by bad actors, but this one institute, one of their six, had like five times more attacks than all the other research institutions combined. And it was a very specific level of research that, I mean, I can't, I'd never heard it before, but you know, that doesn't matter. But they had a world-renowned sort of position on, and the bad actors, they go through the level of social engineering to understand that. And like, that's where their attacks were. We see this time and time again, it's not a coincidence, right? They understand where the monetizable activity is and they're putting their efforts there. And so that's, it's not only just about say research, sure, that's one of your four houses would be the research. But in this example, there was actually one particular institute that was getting exponentially way more activity. So when you have that level of insight about what is a threat landscape for your institution, it helps you a lot to go place your controls. You know, one of the things you said, Ryan, that really resonated with me is the technologies out there, we just have to get it implemented correctly and the training and whatnot, but uh, focusing on the technology again. And I hate to do that because I understand the mistake we make a lot of just saying, well, we'll put this technology in and it'll solve the problem. And it, it doesn't solve the problem in and of itself. But Not to be really provocative at the end of the conversation, but I'm, I'm glad the meaningful use era from a cyber standpoint is consigned to the dustbin because it pointed us in the wrong direction from a compliancy standpoint, and we didn't allow us to go tackle the security problem. But, you know, one of the things that I, I heard two ransomware events while I was on my travels over the last four weeks, and one of them was misconfigured. I mean, they got in through, however, they got in through email, as you would imagine, but it was a misconfigured set of devices that gave them the lateral movement across the entire network, which gave them the ability to really shut down the system. The other one got in through, again, a configuration error, essentially. So human error, human error, but they're getting in, but... Their architecture was such that the, the incident was contained. It was contained within a, within a spot. And so the two things I'd love to hear you comment on is how do we minimize the human error potential? And then the second is how big of a role does architecture play to minimizing our exposure to a, a full-blown ransomware attack? Okay, so I'll take a stab at that. I would sadly... Many health systems, we are running around, putting out fires, answering re requests, keeping the lights on. And we don't have the time to actually look back at our systems, security systems, configurations, and say, hey, are we utilizing the system that we spend a million dollars on? 
And then is it up to date? We could be utilizing it, but is it even up to date? Are we keeping up with things? Such basic things as patching. Okay, patching is not, as I mentioned earlier, it's not sexy, but how many of us know for sure that all of our systems, particularly the external systems, have the patches applied? And how fast does it take us to do that? How many of us can say that we have all of the security systems that we spent a lot of money on, that they're running at 100% or 95%? So there's so many basic things, though, I think that we are not there. We could just look internally and not spend another dime and just get what we've got fully utilized. I think it's also important to realize that because hackers or attackers, there's the large ransomware gangs, and then they have a slew of ransomware affiliates that go ahead and do their bidding. They buy the ransomware as a service in there, and then they go ahead and attack the, the, the clients and the customers. They're a lot more sophisticated. They're focused. They're targeted. As Ryan mentioned, they're doing their research. Uh, but we're not, we're not in healthcare, you know, we're underfunded in many cases. We're not doing any research. We're not even using what we've got. So I think looking at, uh, there's a thing called the MITRE kill chain. Uh, there's concepts called the red team, blue team, purple team. These are, this is where you change the structure of your security team. And this is, you know, what can you do from a security team perspective? Instead of it just being a, what's called a level one, level two, level three, where you just have that kind of very linear approach where you consider either using managed services or maybe some outsourcing, but get the level one or two, get some automation, get some, get that so that you can actually look at the alerts. Because in many cases, the alerts are coming in by the hundreds and thousands, but we are not looking at those alerts because we're busy trying to you know, satisfy a request or we just are understaffed. So I think it's being smarter, looking at those basic requests that we have to do, and then taking the team that you do have left and then making them a little bit more like the attackers where you have the red team, you're hunting, you're looking every day for anomalies, where you got the blue team that's looking at, make sure all the systems are up and running and you're doing simulated insider threat. You know, you're, you're active, you're looking, you're checking, but right now I don't think that we're set up correctly because we're, as I mentioned, we're underfunded. We need to reshape ourselves to better address the level of attack that we're getting. It's interesting. I interviewed a CIO for a health system that did go through a ransomware event. And he said, in order to get reconnected to his community connect partner and whatnot, he had to get hundred percent patched. And he had to verify he was hundred percent patched. He said, it's the first time as a CIO for the health system that he thinks that they were hundred percent patched. And here we were a couple months away. He goes, and my guess is probably not 100% patched now. And it's it's interesting to me because I remember back, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's roughly this. I mean, when I first came in as CIO, we were mid to upper 80% patched. And I'm like, all right, well, that means 10% of our systems aren't patched. That's, that's a problem. And there's reasons for some of them not being patched. And I get that. There's timing for it and, and whatnot that you have to take into account. And I think that we, we drove that up. But again, I don't think we were ever 100% patched across the board. And I guess, is, is there, let me ask it this way. We always talk about people, process, and technology. It's the age old, where should I, if I gave you, I don't know, a million dollars, what percentage am I spending on people, process, and technology? I mean, is it, is it 30, 30, 30? Is it 30, 20, 10? So people, process, technology. Because I know we need a bigger team. I, I know we need to educate people and, and get better processes. And I know we need better technology. But what, what do you think the percentage is, just roughly? 
We're going over our budget now anyways. It's a timely question. So I'm just thinking of our numbers that staffing with FTEs, it's a little expensive if you're going to, you want to keep the higher end people on your staff and manage services. And particularly if you're looking at outsourcing or strategic sourcing, that actually is very valuable. You can get lower rates for, let's just say, a cybersecurity operations center where they're kind of looking at everything. So I would say it's about over 50% for sure, on the staffing component. This is from an operational, like all the money that you spend operationally. Of course, those of you guys that are, you know, in health systems that have to go through the CapEx, OpEx dance, there may be some technologies that you have to put in that will bump up and exceed your staffing, but those are just kind of one-time implementation types of things. But so I would say at least 50% you'd want to reserve for that because that's where you're, I think in general, we have a lot of tools. As I mentioned, we're just not simply using them. And then we need multiple layers to, if somebody slips through one tool, then you should be able to catch them with another tool. But if you don't have time to be looking, detecting, and you're, you're busy just fighting fires, then most likely you're going to get hit. And chances are you may be, like I listened to the Skylake's YouTube video that was pretty you know, insightful. And thankfully they had backups. Now attackers actually can go after your backups, even if they're what's called immutable, where they, they're read-only and they can't be changed. There is a way to hack into them so that you can change their expiration date so that they get deleted. So there's things that there's things that we just have to be spending a little bit of time on to protect. And we can't assume that we can just go to backups because there is a way to get around those. So yeah, so that's my thoughts. Wow. Ryan, people process technology. Where are you investing the million dollars I just gave you? Well, I mean, I was going to jokingly say you can't get people at all. So uh, <laughs> it is true. There's, there's a lot of truth to that. Right. So maybe you would like to invest 50%, but that's probably not achievable. So I, I think it probably is a little bit situational dependent. I, I guess I'm the example of the, of the carpenter who only has a hammer. So I think I look at technology as as one of the solutions and I don't see technology readily deployed. I mean, Jim started off this conversation talking about the wonders of isolation technology. And I think you're absolutely right. But I think the last data I saw on this one is isolation tech capability was maybe deployed at 15 to 20% of healthcare institutions. Oh. So I'm not trying to say it's all about technology, but there are some easy wins out there. Uh, multi-factor is still not as broadly deployed as we like it to see it be. Microsegmentation, which is uh, something I think maybe you referenced a little bit earlier, Bill, about they were able to containerize that ransomware event. I'm guessing they probably used that. I don't know. But so my point is there are there are some easier wins if you haven't made those initial investments. There are some easy wins out there that can pay, I think, exponentially higher dividends initially. If you're already down that path, then I think processes investment, seeing where you fit on some of the frameworks that come from NIST or MITRE or others is a good sort of benchmarking and guideline. But I, I think technology is a really worthwhile investment. And I was a little bit struck by your statement earlier about the patches being deployed. And I understand that I, I have not walked in that sort of role. So I, I don't mean what I'm going to say in any sort of way to be disrespectful. But I also wonder if maybe we need to rethink our whole attitudes toward this in the same way that athletes used to roll up to spring training. Oh, I need spring training to get in shape for the season. But no, no, no. You should be rolling up to spring training in shape and fine tuned for the season. I just want to, maybe we need to rethink our expectations and our attitudes towards the whole way we look at our, 
or IT architectures with the idea of getting much closer to that 100% sort of patching. Yep, I agree. Ryan, I want you to get to comment on cyber insurance, and then I want to come back to both of you with key takeaways. With regard to cyber insurance, interesting conversations with CIOs who've gone through ransomware events that the first time they read their cyber insurance policy was just right after the event happened, and then they were surprised by what was in it and how prescriptive it was and other things that were in it. But what would your coaching be with besides read it to CIOs about the cyber insurance policy? You know, I've heard a few, a few CIOs say to me very recently, like we're seriously considering self-insurance right now because of the, the level of work we have to do to just to adhere to the, to the policy sort of questionnaire. There used to be like a, an hour or two sort of work. Now it's a tens of hours, try just to fill out the questionnaire. And then the level of sort of caveats in place just means that they don't have confidence that can they actually really utilize the cyber insurance if they had that sort of event. So I'm seeing a lot more interest in, should we use cyber, should we self-insure or- And that, that makes sense. I mean, one of the people told me when the event happened, they read their policy and the insurance company came in and essentially put the tape around the site and said, do not disturb. They couldn't even touch their systems for, I think it was 48 hours while everybody sort of descended, looked at the environment and determined all the things that they were going to do. So they, I mean, just flat out were down for 48 hours before they could do anything. Right. And I think if you look at now all the caveats that they put in place in terms of what must you have in kind of in, installed to make sure you qualify for insurance, if you did all those things, your likelihood of having a cyber event is extremely low anyway. Because if they're talking about doing all the things that Jim and I have been talking about on this call, like you know, making sure you have your investments in your, in your technology and your processes, you have the people in place. And if you did all that stuff, you probably, I'm not saying you don't need cyber insurance, but it goes along. You would have solved a lot of your problems anyway. Cyber insurance was kind of there to address. Yep. All right, let's close on this. Key takeaways. So you've been at Chime. We've just had this conversation. What are key takeaways? If I'm a CIO or a a CISO for a health system today, what do you want me to walk away from this conversation with? Ryan, we'll start with you. I think don't let up. I mean, we are at a long sort of runway of unprecedented level of cyber attacks that is not going to dissipate until we as an industry find a way to keep the bad actors at bay. For the most part, they are attacking your people. Your people are your most vulnerable sort of asset in your environment. They have the access to the information and the monetizable activity that your bad actors want. So making sure that you understand that that sort of threat vector and you're doing everything you can to keep your people and your institutions protected. Not because it's the right thing to do, not because it's good for your brand, not because OCR says you have to, you don't want to be on their wall of shame, but because it helps you deliver against your mission. Absolutely. Jim, you get the last word. Well, we talked about a lot of different things, topics, people, process, technology. So I, I think just like maybe just a couple of things in closing is as we did in the beginning of COVID, we realized that we could laser focused you know, stop doing a lot of the things that the many pots on the stove and, and successfully do a few things exceptionally well. And I think we've all experienced that with the recent surge. I think we're kind of having to go back to that. So I think we can, because now cybersecurity is an organizational risk, it should be an imperative. I think we need to give it some focus from a risk management perspective. You know, as talked about, if you can quantify it, that's great. 
where there's, we've got to get the board and the senior leaders to buy in that own the success or failure of risk management. So I think that's key to doing it from the bottom up is going to be really difficult where it will struggle. And so I think the best way is to get get that top level buy-in. Second thing, we didn't talk about a ransomware readiness assessment. So those are things that you can do to say, hey, I've done my risk analysis. I've done my HIPAA risk assessment, et cetera. Uh, You can actually bring in somebody to take a look and say, are you ready for a ransomware event? Do you have the communications? I mean, if something is gonna have a really impactful effect on your organization, Everybody needs to be involved. They need to know what they're supposed to do. What is the CEO supposed to do in the first 24 hours or about the next 48 hours? So you have to have a run book. Many organizations have not gotten this far. Uh, so if something catastrophic was going to happen, uh, like the case of that one organization, all they had were cell phones and Cisco WebEx, I think <laughs> that was all they had to, you know, to communicate. That's called mayhem and we can be prepared. So it's just doing a little bit of emergency preparedness. So I think that's important. We didn't talk much about third-party risk management. A large percentage of our breaches, et cetera, compromises do come from our our business associates. So getting kind of better managing that. And then lastly, I'd like to just add that large or medium-sized complex academic health systems, or maybe not academic, we have mergers, acquisitions, and we bring in different entities, but we don't manage their risk. We don't manage their IT, but they're connected to our networks. They're using our systems, et cetera. So really looking at those entities and assessing the risk and then making an intelligent decision, I think would be helpful. So there's a lot of organizations, I think, that that are like that, that that could stand to get that improved. You know, Jim, you bring up a great topic for a future podcast, which would be cybersecurity practices through M&A. Because when two companies come together, I think some things sort of get lax and you think they would get more in the other direction, but uh, sometimes they get lax because somebody's getting acquired and so they are worried about their jobs and they, you know, want to be good people and be deemed easier to work with and all that stuff. There's just a whole, and and then just the whole practices. M&A is not something you go through all the time. It's something that you go through maybe once or twice in your career if you're lucky, but there's just a whole set of practices around that. To your point though, there, in addition to M&As, many organizations are constantly adding new organizations or they're selling or doing various things. So I think it's, there's the big mergers and then there's the small, let's bring in this home health organization, let's get rid of half of them, whatever. And so I think that, but I think those are areas that we can focus on also. Absolutely. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and sharing your experience. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. What a great discussion. If you know of someone that might benefit from our channel, from these kinds of discussions, please forward them a note. Perhaps your team, your staff. I know if I were a CIO today, I would have every one of my team members listening to this show. It's it's conference level value every week. They can subscribe on our website, thisweekhealth.com, or they can go wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Google, Overcast, which is what I use, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, you name it, we're out there. They can find us. Go ahead, subscribe today, send a note to someone and have them subscribe as well. We want to thank our channel sponsors who are investing in our mission to develop the next generation of health IT leaders. Those are VMware, Hillrom, Starbridge Advisors, Aruba, and McAfee. Thanks for listening. That's all for now.